Well, good morning. It is good to see you this morning. Uh, in the art world, uh, the ongoing philosophical argument is what is art? And uh, all of us have an idea what art should be, and so we tend to decorate our homes and uh, places of gathering with pieces of art and uh, photography and other ex expressions of the creative spirit. Uh, but today, if uh, we had our Grace Point Boeing 787, I would take you on a little journey to look at an art installation. And uh, we would fly to southwest Africa to the country of Namib Namib Namibia. <laughs> Uh, it's south, uh, on the southwest coast of Africa there. And there is a large desert there, over 31,000 square miles, a coastal desert called the Namib, Namib Desert. And uh, in that desert, there is an art installation. I'm going to have Wes show us a video if Tom would get the lights, and you will see what this art installation is. I don't know how many of you would want that art installation in your home, especially since it plays uh, the rock band Toto's song, Africa, which uh, was uh, popular back in 1982. Can you imagine? Oh, oh, yes, I know. It has a life of its own. It has a life of its own. And the artist of this installation, in fact, nobody knows where it's at except for him. And his name is Max Siedentoff. He is a Nam uh, Namibian German artist, and he put that out there, and he has got it set up, uh, powered by solar power, and it's, his whole idea is that that song, Africa, will be heard in perpetuity. Now, I don't know who's going to be listening to it, but it is out there, playing today. A year ago, he spent all the month of December setting that up with uh, six speakers, an MP3 player. And that song is set to play loop after loop after loop in the desert there. And uh, it will ensure with the solar power that it will play perpetually uh, forever is his hope in that. And we will see if we ever even knew where it was at. But I'm sure he must check on it once in a while. Uh, but I was thinking about that and thinking about the setting uh, for that song in that desert, and, uh, and I thought it was a, appropriate for our study through uh, the Songs of Ascent, the Songs of Ascent in the book of Psalms. Today we come to Psalm 126, and it is really a psalm of lament. It takes a lament character and form, and it is true to the, uh, the, the uh, pattern that we've seen in these Songs of Ascent or Psalms of Ascent or songs of degrees. Remember the ancient Jewish people as they went up to Jerusalem to worship uh, three times uh, per year as God commanded them in the book of Exodus, they would travel from their farms and their villages and their family units and village units, and they would sing these psalms as they went up 
is what is reported, and they would worship, and that's how their children learned the Psalms, because they didn't have paper copies in their hands. Uh, The Jewish people were very strong on oral tradition, and so these were passed down from generation to generation. But uh, I was thinking about the whole issue of uh, living in the desert, and even though that's a beautiful place to visit, I'm sure, there's a fact that we don't want to live in the desert And uh, the question is, is do we have a song that plays perpetually in our lives, the song of joy? And really, as we read through Psalm 126, you'll notice that the word joy and joyful occurs and uh, that uh, God is teaching us through this psalm uh, that there can be joy in the midst of desert experiences, in the midst of problems and difficulties in life. And uh, we come to this psalm today. Of course, they were going up those three times a year to Passover in the spring, Pentecost in the summer, and the Day of Atonement in the fall. And God was directing their steps. And it serves as a metaphor for the Christian life, for those of us in the 21st century as we walk the walk of faith and journey in faith, that what is our walk like? What is this journey like? It's really a pilgrimage because we are moving through this life, looking forward to eternal life, which we possess right now, and seeing Jesus Christ face to face. And so we look back and we look forward and we anticipate what God is going to do. Each psalm uh, has a historical setting. I mean, these were hammered out in real-life situations. It wasn't just a poet sitting along beside a lake writing out poetry, but they came out of real-life situations. Some of them we know very well, others not so well. And this psalm, the historical setting, it's kind of divided. The scholars are divided what the historical setting was. A lot of them think it was after a return from the Babylonian captivity. Uh, But I don't agree with that personally, and I'll tell you why in a minute. Well, first of all, it was probably not the Babylonian captivity. Uh, They had known the length of the captivity uh, from Jeremiah and from Daniel. It was going to be 70 years long, so it was not a sudden return. Uh, The focus here is on Zion, which is the city of Jerusalem, specifically Temple Mount, and not the nation of Judah. And here we learn in this psalm that the Gentile nations rejoiced with the nation Israel at whatever happened, and they were recognizing that God was doing something miraculous in this city. So I think Psalm uh, 126, a better historical setting, is the time of uh, Hezekiah. He was the godly king of Judah. And you can read about this in 2 Kings 18 and 19, 2 Chronicles 32, and Isaiah 36 through 37 is the historical setting, which I believe that this psalm was birthed after and through. Hezekiah, as I said, was a godly king of Judah, and the Assyrian army under Sennacherib was attacking Judah. And if you can read about it there, and they invaded Judah in 701 B.C. and captured all the fortified cities, and all that was left was Mount Zion. All that was left was Jerusalem. And Hezekiah Hezekiah refused to subject himself to Assyria and his people, even though the Assyrian army, it was the superpower of its day, and it had decimated all of Judah. And therefore, the Assyrian Sennacherib, the leader, sent his armies to capture Jerusalem. You may remember that story, but he sent his bully, Rabshakeh, and took along a couple of other bullies to intimidate Hezekiah, and yet Hezekiah did not bend. He prayed to God. And God delivered Jerusalem from the Assyrians. Remember that night, 185,000 Assyrian soldiers were killed that night by an angel of the Lord. And it was just a miraculous deliverance, a miraculous deliverance 
of the nation of the people of Jerusalem and of the nation of Judah from the Assyrians. And so we come to this point and come to Psalm 126, and I want to start right in the middle, right in the middle. Notice in verse 3, the last phrase in verse 3 says, we are glad, or we are joyful, or we are happy. That's a number of the words that are English words that are translating the Hebrew word here, but we are glad is a present tense verb. It is a present tense statement by the psalmist here, and it says, we are glad. And one thing the question is, and I've been questioning this myself this week, is do I exhibit joy? Do I feel joyful in life? And that's a question each one of us have to ask. No matter what is happening in our lives, the adversity, the difficulty, the surprises that are in a negative sense, can I remain joyful in the midst of those things? And that is a good question for us because we in the Western world tend to equate our joy with happiness, happiness dependent upon our circumstances and on things that we accumulate. And so we are a little bit of a, in, a, in a foreign context when we talk about biblical joy. I think the first thing to remember is joy is a consequence of being a believer in Jesus Christ. It is not a requirement It is not a requirement, but it is a consequence of the fullness of God in our lives. If we were to go ahead and look at the book of Proverbs, we would see that Solomon left us many indicators about that word joy, many statements about the value of joy. He writes in Proverbs 17, 22, a joyful heart is good medicine, but a broken spirit dries up the bones. A couple more here. A joyful heart makes a cheerful face, but when the heart is sad, the spirit is broken, Proverbs 15. And a cheerful heart as a continual feast in Proverbs 15. There's no more effective testimony uh, in our lives, your life, my life, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, of a changed life than a winsome spirit, a joyful spirit, even in the midst of difficulty, struggle, and change. The joy that oozes from people like that is contagious, isn't it? We like to be around people who are joyful, who are upbeat, and want to see what God is doing in their lives. You know, we as Christians, we talk a lot about love and hope, but we often fail to emphasize the value of the characteristic of joy, don't we? Which is kind of strange when you think about it, especially when it appears at the top of the list, near the top of the list of the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians chapter 5. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. We're not preaching out of Galatians today, but notice where the source is. The source is the Holy Spirit of God who gives those qualities, and it's called fruit in a singular sense. Uh, I was reading about Queen Elizabeth again, and uh, Balmoral Castle in Scotland, when the queen takes residence there, they fly her banner above Balmoral uh, Castle so that everybody knows that the queen is in residence at Balmoral Castle. And, you know, the sovereign's banner flies from us. There's a saying that goes like this, joy is the flag flying high above the castle of the heart, announcing that the king is in residence there. I love that. It's kind of become a little bit trite, but I still love it. Joy is the flag flying high above the castle of the heart, announcing that the king is in residence there. Joy is a consequence of the king's residence in our hearts and lives. It is not a requirement to be a Christian because you cannot manufacture joy. 
We may accumulate stuff that makes us happy for a little bit, but then it always goes away. Joy is not something we buy or manufacture. And here in this verse, in verse 3, we are glad is the present tense. And before that is all past tense in this psalm. In verses 1 through 3, right up to this present tense statement, it's past tense. And then it looks forward to the future in verses 4 through 6. That's all future tense uh, the psalmist has used there. And so joy is the product of abundance. It's the overflow of vitality of Christ in our lives. It's exuberance that is not dependent upon our circumstances and is not the product of our efforts. Joy cannot be commanded, purchased, or arranged. But as the psalmist relates here, there was a rehearsal about looking over our shoulders, looking back into the past. And uh, we can do that. And we can decide to live in response to the character of God and his faithfulness. When I was a new believer, I really wanted to know God's will for my life. And I fully expected that he was going to send me a map, okay? Or someplace in the pages of this book, there was a blueprint for the rest of my life, and that was the will for my life, okay? And I wanted it all detailed out, so all I had to do was follow the map, and there we go. I've come to realize uh, that God's will and the revelation of it is more like a scroll that is rolling out behind us. As I look over my shoulder, I can see God's faithfulness in my life in the past and see that he was working his will out for us and for me and for my family. And so God is, it's important to look back. In fact, in the Old Testament, through the prophets and the declaration of Old Testament writers, Israel was always commanded to remember, 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 because God knows that we have short memories. And so here he's having the psalmist look back to a specific event in the life of Judah here, and there are certain consequences to joy. So he has them look back in the past tense in verses 1 through 3 in this joyful restoration, whatever it was. Look at verses 1 through 3 again. When the Lord brought back the captive ones of Zion, we were like those who dream. It was like a dreamscape. It was like, this cannot be real. It is so amazing, so wonderful. Verse 2, and our mouth was filled with laughter and our tongue with joyful shouting. And then they said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us. We look back at our story. We do this or try to when we take communion together. Remember, Jesus commands us in the Corinthian passage about the Lord's table is to remember, remember, remember what I have done. And so each one of us, if you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, if you've been a believer for 60 years or maybe six months, you can look back and see God's faithfulness, what he has done, and rehearse those things. Here it was a sudden, amazing, collective, communal event. And if it was the deliverance from the Assyrians, that was sudden. And one night, they were about ready to be annihilated, and then they woke up in the morning, and it was all all the enemy was gone. It had changed tremendously, this joyful restoration. It was so incredible that their deliverance of freedom, they were <clears throat> nations around them even were shouting with joy that, that well, Israel does have a God. Look at this. Nothing in the known world then could have said that. The writer Stephen Mitchell once described holy joy this way. He said, it is so large that it is no longer inside of you, but you are inside of it. Now, for us, you know, we probably don't have as, as great of a deliverance as these people did when Hezekiah was the king. But you've had deliverances in your life. 
I look back at my own life and my, my agnosticism and atheism and, and so confident that there was no God and, the, oh, I don't believe this stuff. And believe me, I grew up in the church. I was in worship services and Sunday school and youth groups, everything from the time I was born. And yet I rejected it all because I had, my eyes were not open to the truth of the good news of Jesus Christ until I was 28 years old. And then God opened my eyes and made John 3.16 a reality for me. You know, for God so loved you that he gave his only begotten son that if you believe in him, you will not perish but have everlasting life. That is restoration. Believe me, that is rescue. That is deliverance from what God has done. So that joy is larger that it's no longer inside of you, but you are inside of it. So how about applying this past tense look in the psalmist to today? Well, think about the elation that those people had. And then think about the elation when somebody believes in the Lord Jesus Christ for everlasting life. There is rejoicing in heaven, and we should rejoice. Notice that at the beginning of this psalm, who did this? When the Lord brought them back. It's nothing that humans manufactured. In fact, humans were going to destroy everything, and yet God is the one. That is our same God. This is not some Old Testament God that we know nothing about. This is God, Yahweh God, the proper name for God. He is truth, and the truth shall set us free. The Apostle John tells us in chapter 8 of John of his gospel, the believer is free from guilt and punishment. Romans 8.1, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You need to cling to that verse, especially if you are in a tendency to beat yourself up about who you are. Remember what Jesus says about who you are, what God says. We are free from sin's power, Romans chapter 6. That's why I say when people ask, how are you doing? I always say I'm perfect and getting better because that's the declaration of Romans 6, 7, and 8. Now, I may not look perfect. I may not look like I'm getting better physically, but God declares that spiritually that we are growing in him. We are free from sin's power. We are free from the fear of death, 1 Corinthians 15. We are free from the power of Satan, Colossians 1. We are free from the laws, demands, and consequences, Romans chapter 7. The believer is enabled to live in victory, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13. He gives us his Holy Spirit who... It energizes us and gives us the power to live lives of godliness each day. Joyful restoration. You know, we tend to look for joy in all the wrong places. In fact, the whole advertising scheme of, uh, of media is pointing us in the wrong direction that we're ultimately going to find joy. Now, I don't know about your mother, but I know my mother said, do not eat candy before dinner, okay? No candy before dinner. And I thought it was cruel and an unusual punishment. And I think my grandchildren still think that. But uh, don't eat candy before meals. Why did she say that? Because she said she knew it would ruin the meal. It would ruin the next meal. Because the trouble with eating candy or sweets is that it gives you a sugar buzz and then you don't feel hungry. The physiology is there. Candy masks the fact that your body needs proteins and vitamins. The sugar buzz from candy masks your hunger for the real nutrients that your body really needs to have. And so things like sex and power and money and success, as well as favorable circumstances, those are the spiritual sugar that gets in the way of the real nutrients that we need 
Christians who have these spiritual candies may say, sure, I believe in God and I know I'm going to heaven, but they're actually basing their day-to-day joy on favorable circumstances. Did you catch that? We base our joy on favorable circumstances, but when the circumstances change, it drives us to God because when the sugar disappears, when the candy gets taken away, we're forced to pursue the feast that our souls really crave. We'll hunger for spiritual nutrients that we really need, and of course, that is Jesus Christ and he alone. And so avoid the candy before the real nutrition that you need. So what does the psalmist do as he has remembered the early days? And then there's this statement, we are glad. But then he goes and looks to the future, verses 4 through 6, and it changes a bit. There is a joyful anticipation for sure, but there is also this concept of sowing and reaping. He asked God for two things. He asked God for two things. Their mouths were filled with laughter, their tongues with songs of joy, But in joyful anticipation, he asked for God to give them the good times again. Look at verse 4. Restore our captivity, O Lord, as the streams in the south. Uh, He is moving here into some metaphors for 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 the believer's life, for the spiritual life. The word in the New American Standard is transferred captivity. Some of your versions uh, have abundance. Uh, It's a difficult Hebrew word to translate, but basically he is requesting God for the good times again, that they would restore them, restore our fortunes, the NIV says. And he uses, excuse me, the picture of dry stream beds in the south. In the south of Jerusalem is the Negev Desert. And in that desert, there are these, they're called wadis over there, but they're like coolies that are dry. And I was thinking today, up up by our irrigation system, there is that overflow uh, uh, ditch, basically, when it rains real heavy, it can be filled up with water, just, just full of water flowing down the hill. Uh, but s- instead of just settling down for the dreary tasks of day-to-day life without any thought of better times from the memories that we have, the psalmist asks God to restore the good times again. In other words, he is praying here. He's praying to God. He asks for what is good, desirable, and glorifying to God. Restore our fortunes, O Lord, like the old times, like the, like the, like the, the, the desert with these, these sudden rainstorms which would fill up these gullies into, form, into streams. They were parched, barren, and hot on a normal day, but when it rained in the high country, they would fill up with water and refreshing water, and then the spring plants and the flowers would blossom, and it would be suddenly alive. And people, these people, they were freed from the Assyrian oppression. And uh, they were desirous of being entirely for God and seeing him work out his salvation for them. And he could do that in ways that we can even imagine. And so for believers in Jesus Christ in the 21st century, we possess fullness in completeness in Jesus Christ. John 1.16 we're in the Gospel of John, where it reads, For the fullness of his grace, we have all received one blessing after another. Your streams are full. I know it seems like you're in the desert place. You're out and there's nothing. There's no water. There's nothing for you spiritually. And yet, the Bible declares God's streams are full if we open our eyes. Colossians chapter 1, Christ is complete, fully God. In him we are made complete in Colossians chapter 2. Jesus is the well of living water, John 4. Through him, the believers, in believers, we become channels of blessing to others around us. 
we can be full of the Holy Spirit, Ephesians chapter 5. We're full of the Word of God, Colossians 3, full of the faith of God, Acts 6. A yielded believer will be full of the fruits of righteousness, Philippians chapter 1. We can have the unspeakable and full of glory, this gift of joy, 1 Peter chapter 1. Uh, God delivered the people of Jerusalem physically, but it was a picture of a bigger need, and it was their spiritual need, delivered spiritually. And you and I need to be delivered from our desire to partake of the, 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 the candy that ruins the real nutrient. And the psalmist saw physical deliverance of, uh, of the people as a greater picture of spiritual deliverance that only faith can bring. He now moves in verses 5 to 6 into an agricultural metaphor. He's talked about the streams which flow from God's hand, and now he talks about an agricultural metaphor, and he prophesies a time of joy which is going to follow sorrow. And he uses that whole idea of sowing and reaping. Of course, in the Assyrian army, when they came into Judah, they destroyed all the crops They were threatened. There was famine that was threatening the people of Jerusalem. But God told them in Isaiah 37, verses 30 through 35, this will be a sign for you, O Hezekiah. This year you will eat what grows by itself, and the second year what springs from that. But in the third year, sow and reap, plant vineyards, and eat their fruit. He's promising, in other words, there will be abundance. The famine will not come. There will be abundance. For the believer in Jesus Christ our, our joyful hope is that in proportion to our fruitfulness in the sense that God will work out his will in our lives, sowing and reaping from tears to joy and a joyful shout. And any of you, uh, any of you in the agriculture business, you know that when you're sowing, there can be tears. It's hard work, and there's no promise that the rains are going to come. Think about this setting. They didn't have pivots and irrigation systems. Uh, they just waited for God's hand to bring the rains for their crops so they would not starve to death. But we learn about this kind of joy in one of the last scenes of the Bible. In the book of Revelation, the Apostle John writes these words in chapter 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. And there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Now the dwelling of God is with men, and he will live with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them. And he, their God, he will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the older order of things has passed away. Eugene Peterson summarizes Psalm 126 this way. He says, The psalm does not give us joy as a package or as a formula. You know, it's not three ways to have joy in your life. But there are some things it does do. It shows us that the world's joy is really a false joy. And it affirms the solid nature of God's joy. It reminds us of the accelerating costs and diminishing returns of those who pursue pleasure as a path towards joy. It introduces us to the way of discipleship, which has consequences in joy. It encourages us in a way of faith that both experience and share in joy. It tells the story of God's act, which put laughter in the people's mouths and shouts on their tongues. It repeats the promises of a God who accompanies his wandering, weeping children until they arrive home, exuberant, bringing in the sheaves. It announces the existence of a people who, along with whatever else is happening, are able to say at the center, 
we are glad. That song we were introduced today, when we sang this psalm, remember the refrain is, we are glad, we are glad. Yes, there is sowing, there is weeping, but there will be a harvest, there is a future. The world and its history really are a prelude and a foretaste. All the sunrises, all the sunsets, all the symphonies, all the rock concerts, all the feasts, all the friendships are but whispers. They are a prologue to a grander, greater story than even a better place. Only there, it will never end. You think of all of our, our, our things that we are attracted to, those things come to an end, don't they? But there they won't. J.I. Packer, the writer, said it well. He said, hearts on earth say in the course of a joyful experience, I don't want this ever to end. Remember that perfect holiday meal? I never want this to end. But it invariably does, Packer says. The hearts in heaven say, I want this to go on forever, and it will. And there was no better news than this. As the worship team comes up this morning to close us with song, I'm going to ask you about some count-it-all-joy parties, some count-it-all-joy parties. Uh, Our previous sermon series was out of the book of James, and if you remember the book of James, chapter 1, it says these words. These are James's words to us in chapter 1, verses 2 and 3, where it says, Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. How do we count it all joy? I read of a man down in Florida who he has what are called, what he calls, count-it-all-joy parties. And every now and then he'll have one of these. He so believes in this passage out of James that when he faces a difficult, adverse situation, he would call all his friends and say, come over to the house. I want you to come over to my house for a party. And they would say, oh, is it your birthday? No, it's not my birthday. He'd say, oh, did you get a promotion at work? No, it's not a promotion. New grandchild, new child on the way? No, it's not that. He'd say, what's the situation? They'd finally ask, what are we celebrating? And he'd say, I'm going through this incredibly difficult crisis right now, and I'm having a count-it-all-joy party. We're going to celebrate the difficulty because I know that this difficulty is going to bring something of special value into my life. Because God said it will. I don't know what it is yet, but I want you to come and count it all joy with me. And so, have you ever thrown a count it all joy party? No, me neither. And, but maybe it's something to consider. To tell you the truth, it is tough to consider it all joy when you're in the midst and the crucible of testing, problems, difficulties, loss, pain. You just name the list. It goes on and on because it does hurt. But yet it's important to realize that unless we go through some tests, we will never know what our faith is made of doing. Count it all joy. Heavenly Father, thank you for this passage, this psalm that the psalmist wrote for us. And as they sang and as we sang today, we recognize that you want us to experience your joy and have it in abundance. And Lord, remind us that our joy is not dependent upon our circumstances on the things that come into our life, but we can count it all joy, even in adversities and difficulties. And Lord, remind us the fact that you can deliver us and you are going to deliver us, and that even though we are sowing in this life, there will be reaping in the life to come. And Lord, we will shout with joy as we come in. In Jesus' powerful name we pray. Amen. Would you please?